Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medicom Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Now back to this episode, we have two unrelated interviews again. Firstly, we speak with Clara McKay, CEO of the World Ovarian Cancer Coalition based in Canada. Among other topics, we talk about how their organization supports ovarian cancer patients worldwide, some of the barriers being addressed in parts of the world, and especially about their upcoming World Ovarian Cancer Day, bringing awareness to ovarian cancer every year on May 8th. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Later, we have a discussion with Dr. Priya Sarangupta, who's the medical director of community-based clinical programs at Mass General Brigham in Boston about mobile health services for medically underserved populations, as well as what the impact might be on the recently approved over-the-counter Narcan. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, approved the -the over-the-counter sales of a life-saving opioid overdose treatment in late March 2023. The availability of the nasal spray, commonly known as Narcan, means people can buy the medication in neighborhood pharmacies, supermarkets, and even at mobile health buses. How do mobile health services work, and what will over-the-counter Narcan cost? Those are some of the questions we discuss. Enjoy listening. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Thanks, Clara. I've known you for a while. It's great to have you here. Could you just tell me a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and maybe discuss your organization in broad strokes? Brilliant. Nice to be here, Rachel. Always great to chat. So I'm Clara McKay. I'm CEO of the World Ovarian Cancer Coalition, and we are a not-for-profit that's registered in Canada, but we work with a network of about 200 patient advocacy organizations worldwide who share our commitment to improving survival and quality of life for anyone impacted by ovarian cancer. And our work roughly falls into three strategic pathways, really. So the coalition really developed out of an effort to start a World Ovarian Cancer Day, which was launched in 2013. And the response to that campaign was just so encouraging and positive that You know, there was a strong message that there was an appetite for a global network and to work more closely together globally and on awareness, but beyond. But raising awareness and World Ovarian Cancer Day in particular remains a a really important pillar of our work. Our kind of second strategic pathway is about providing original evidence around the experiences of those who are living at risk of or with the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. So we've done some very large pieces of work, including something called the Every Woman Study that we published in 2018. It remains the largest study of its kind. We drew on the experiences of 1,500 women from 44 different countries. Yeah, really interesting. Everything from what they knew before their diagnosis about ovarian cancer, right through to the level of support that they uh, felt they needed and received part of their care. So just a really deep dive. And that's been published widely, including in peer-reviewed journals. And and importantly, not just used by the coalition, but by our member organizations at country level to advocate. So we do a lot of that, trying to fill those evidence gaps, trying to really shine a light on, on the experiences and the inadequacies uh, where we are with ovarian cancer today. And then our third kind of strategic pathway 
way lies underneath both of those things. And it's about helping to build capacity for supporting our member organizations. And we sort of call it making ourselves as useful as we can be to those that we work with. And sometimes that is very basic. You know, we once asked someone, one of our groups in Africa, what could we do that would make the biggest difference for them? And she said, if you could create a template for my newsletter, that would sort of transform my my life. And, you know, so we're happy to do that. And we're also happy to, you know, do bigger pieces of work and, and provide evidence in a way that can be used at national level. So, so that's the coalition and the net that we cast and the work that we do. Oh, that's really interesting. So let's just start with the first point, which is World Ovarian Cancer Day. That's coming up, right? It's coming up. Yeah, it's really coming up very soon. So it's on May 8th, although we really start the campaign quite early. We have sort of a month lead in where we really just start to kind of warm things up. And then as the month goes forward, we sort of intensify with our campaign. So I think I said earlier, we started the campaign or the coalition did in 2013. I think there were about 30 advocacy organizations involved. We estimate up to 50,000 reach in that first year. And last year, the campaign, just on our own ovarian cancer coalition platforms, reached just under 30 million people worldwide in over 50 countries and in about the same number of languages. So it's really, wow. you know, we burst with pride every year. And it's not so much a reflection on our success as it is a reflection on the passion and the commitment within the community. And I think the thing that, you know, will join patients and patient advocacy organizations and clinicians and ministers of health and health services is something like a world day. You know, it's a great way to really unify our voice and importantly, raise awareness of ovarian cancer and ovarian cancer symptoms and risk factors. Do you mind if I just step back one second? And could you just remind our listeners, what are the major symptoms? What is the incidence roughly? It's considered a rare cancer, correct? Yeah, it's a less common cancer. I don't think it quite has a rare cancer, but although within ovarian cancer, I'm sure this is true with every, (laughs) there are rare subtypes, very rare subtypes within. So just over 300,000 people worldwide are diagnosed with ovarian cancer each year. About 200,000 people die. Five-year survival rates are not very encouraging. So in a high-income country, probably something like 36% five-year survival rate. But in lower-income settings, we know it's much, much worse. Um, So it really lags behind. It's for sure the most lethal of women's gynecological cancers. Interestingly, the incidence and mortality are set to rise quite significantly between now and 2040. So by way of the number of people diagnosed each year, that will increase by about 40%. The most significant element of that burden will be in lower income countries and regions. And mortality is actually set to double. So it will go up by nearly 50 percent in between now and 2040. So unless we do something significantly different than we're doing now. So uh, for us, that's a real, you know, our... Uh, Our concern is the 4 million women that will die between now and 2040 if we don't do any better. And that is really kind of what drives a lot of our advocacy work, which is closing that gap. It reflects right back to our World Day campaign strapline, which is no woman left behind or no person left behind, depending on how people want to use it. 
But it's it's a significant cancer burden and public health burden that's growing. And to your second point is the patient-generated data, which is becoming increasingly more visible, I think, also because it's so complementary to guidelines. Totally. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if you could give some examples about the obstacles that you're finding in patients or other interesting findings from that survey that you do? So our first survey that we did in 2018, we had 1,500 responses. We also supplemented that with individual interviews and interviews with clinicians. So it was a quite well-rounded perspective. And it was greatly, I mean, really, really well-received within our community. We have, I mentioned, we published it in a peer-reviewed journal, but we have used that data since 2018, very consistent. And it's been used. In fact, just yesterday, I saw a published study go by and the 2018 Every Woman's Study was cited in that. So it's proven to, I think, really be recognized as adding a really good contribution to that evidence base. What I love is our partner organizations worldwide and how they use that study. So our colleagues in Australia have used it as part of a submission to their health select committee. So really taking the data and showing where New Zealand sat in relation to other countries and what that told them about what they needed to do. We have other member organizations, for example, in Malaysia, where they're they're participating in a, a version of this study that we're doing in middle to low income countries. So just to clarify, when we did the 2018 study, we were really mindful that the responses we got back were largely from higher income countries. And our cohort actually were better educated, financially more secure than kind of the average person, which was interesting. But we felt as a global organization, we really needed to go back and look at the experiences of people in middle to low income countries. So we're we're now doing the study in 24 low and middle income countries. We're working with the International Gynecologic Cancer Society as a partner. They are networking us into an amazing network of clinicians who will do this work with us just for free because they feel so strongly about the need to highlight the challenges in their settings. And we have a growing network of patient advocates in those settings. So But because of this work in Malaysia, the patient advocate and clinician involved in the study actually set up a new patient advocacy group called Ovarian Cancer Malaysia, just because of coming together around the study, realizing the need to provide more support to people living with the disease. And so we have this really amazing new patient advocacy organization that had not existed before. So those are a couple of examples of where the data, and actually importantly, I think our approach to how we generate data, which is very much about involving people on the ground who are living the experience and are committed to driving change in their own setting. So it's quite an honor actually for us to be able to work with that large network of advocates and clinicians and and to see how they are using the information that we generate. That's really interesting. And so what kind of things do people do on World Ovarian Cancer Day? Do you focus on some of the networks and, and try to encourage them, say, to use fundraising to support their own groups? or do- Yes. So we've perfected our craft, I guess, over the last number of years. And so we create messaging that we feel resonates You know, there will be messages for everyone, whether you're a health minister or you're a person who's concerned about ovarian cancer or living with ovarian cancer. So, uh, but a lot of it really focuses on symptoms, knowing increasingly about knowing risk factors and the importance of family history 
and access to best treatments, that kind of thing. So a kind of tiered messaging in there. And what's really been amazing to watch is that we kind of provide the core resources, you know, provide as much support as we can. But the campaign has really been driven by our partner organizations on the ground. And they've done some amazing things, including great fundraising initiatives, which we encourage. But we've also had member organizations secure billboards in Times Square and Piccadilly Circus around the day. Our Italian organization had a, created a public service announcement. They had a feature in the Italian version of Vanity Fair. So just some really, you know, kind of very different but very impactful initiatives. And from our point of view, the more it kind of catches, the happier we are for people to take it and run with it. And we really see ourselves as facilitating their engagement. We're really excited this year because we're starting a program, an ambassadors program. So we'll be announcing two very high profile, influential women from Nigeria and Kenya and the U.S. who are going to be working with us. And that's about working with women in their own countries and to amplify the kind of messages. And and they will be influential in their own setting. So it's, you know, it's a whole kind of mix of things. And all we ask is that people share the same hashtag. You know, that's how we know that, that the campaign is rolling out effectively. But and, you know, stick to some core messages and use our materials when you can. And we always offer to co-brand. So just whatever we can do to, you know, really support efforts on the ground. So it's and actually the interesting thing for us is on the actual day, we do very little original posting. What we do is we just sit and watch the world and repost and like and, and share and, you know, really sort of try and amplify the, the activities that are happening on the ground. And since our audience today are actually doctors or medical professionals of some flavor, could you share some advice as to how they can participate in this program at all? Yes, it can be as simple as, you know, going to our website, World Ovarian Cancer Coalition, finding our social media, our Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. What we have discovered is when we talk to healthcare professionals, it's often through LinkedIn or Twitter. Facebook is often more for advocates and such. So we've gotten better at that as well. But I think, you know, do just support your local groups. Give them a shout out on the day. It just takes one post. Just that's all you're adding your voice to the 28 million that are out there speaking. I think it's about using the day to really show that there is a global tidal wave of support and an ambition for ovarian cancer. And what is the hashtag? So, yes, yeah, so the, the hashtag for World Day is hashtag no woman left behind. But we also encourage people to use hashtag no person left behind. There's a, a whole series of hashtags that can be used, but the main one we lead on is hashtag no woman left behind. Okay, well, everyone out there, please tag that. And it's coming up, so it's May 8th. Do you have any last comments you want to share with physicians, caregivers, and the like? Yeah, I think two things. One is, you know, we are we are really encouraged by what we're seeing in ovarian cancer. I think there's a lot to be encouraged by way of development of new treatments, and that's really good. And now what I think we really, really need to keep an eye on is ensuring that women are diagnosed as quickly as possible so that they are well enough to access and tolerate treatments so that they are well enough to participate in clinical trials so that they can live longer and with better quality of life. So it's a real, you know, we feel very strongly about 
making sure that everyone who is at risk of or living with a diagnosis has access to the best treatments possible. So, you know, there is no room for delay. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. I really enjoyed it. Hi there, just to remind you again, our next speaker is Dr. Priya Saran Gupta. She's the medical director of community-based clinical programs at Mass General Brigham in Boston. And she's gonna talk about her experience with mobile health units, and she'll give some perspectives on the over-the-counter, newly approved Narcan. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Saran Gupta. Could you please tell me a little bit about your interests and your work? Sure. So I'm a primary care physician and also medical director for clinical community-based programs for Mass General Brigham, which is a healthcare system in the Boston area and includes Mass General Hospital and Brigham. And my interests are in addressing health disparities through my practice in medicine and really practicing medicine at the interface between medicine and public health. So thinking about all of the social risk factors that go into an individual's health in addressing health conditions that are preventable and treatable. All right, can you give some exact examples of projects you've worked on? Sure, so I can talk a little bit about how I got involved in mobile health. And so in the Boston area, when the COVID-19 pandemic first surged, our hospital system set up a few pop-up clinics to help address in COVID care to individuals that needed it at that time, initially COVID testing. And then many of us primary care physicians who started staffing those clinics started noticing was that COVID was really highlighting many of the social determinants of health that we had often ignored in healthcare and in medicine. And we were seeing that while some patients were accessing care, there were many other patients that weren't accessing care. So for example, you know, one of my patients that at the time drove for Uber and didn't really have benefits when he was out sick, didn't really want to know whether he had COVID or not, because if he was given the positive diagnosis of COVID, he would have to quarantine in his house for 10 days, and he would not be able to make enough money to put food on the table for his family. And similarly, you know, I remember taking care of this elderly patient who was living in Chelsea, one of our communities that was hardest hit in Massachusetts, and she was living in a multi-generational home, and she didn't want to know whether she had COVID either because her family, uh, multi-generational family, lived in like a two-bedroom. And and if she knew she had COVID, well, where would she go in quarantine? And so as, as those stories emerged, myself and others were sort of inspired to think about how we could do some social risk mitigation. And that coupled with engaging with community partners in these communities where COVID was highest really guided the formation of what was initially a clinic on wheels through the MGH Craft Center uh, that was really focused on bringing care to the communities, but also providing social risk mitigation. And as COVID stabilized, we realized that this mobile platform was a way to sort of reimagine our hospital's front 
door to not only provide sick care, but health care. So, you know, initially on this mobile service line that I oversee for Mass General Brigham, we were providing COVID testing and then COVID test and treat and COVID vaccinations. And then we began to think about other conditions that contribute to vulnerable patient populations having increased morbidity and mortality. And we've had this data-driven approach all along. And what we realized was that conditions like hypertension and diabetes could benefit from some of these services out in the communities as well, as well as uh, substance use disorder care. And so our vans first helped close the gap around the care around COVID-19, but really now, we're trying to tackle, you know, these chronic diseases in a more effective way. So you're not just perpetuating the same care using the mobile units, but you're actually extending it now. Exactly. Our goal is to expand high quality health care to vulnerable patient populations, but in a targeted way to really meet them out in the community and not leave them where they're at and really meet the needs that they have at this time. And how do you generate those resources? Because that does require additional resources, I'm assuming. So, yes, initially our work was in its early stages funded by the NIH, and that funding allowed us to do a lot of community engagement and needs assessment. But our system has been incredibly supportive of this work as they've seen the effectiveness and the efficacy of this work. And now the Mass General Brigham Community Caravans, which is the name of our mobile service line, is funded by the United Against Racism Initiative through Mass General Brigham. Oh, fantastic. How do you see this going forward? And how can you make this a standard of care for communities that are lacking resources? Well, we've shown so far through a proof of concept, essentially, is that with these clinics on wheels, we've been effective in reaching people who have historically been disengaged with care or marginalized or just not been able to access care for a number of reasons. But the way that we see this work moving forward is really to build on what we've learned. Our work has been sort of this example in systemness, I would say, where we've worked very closely in the communities, uh, where we're taking these vans, partnered with community organizations and key stakeholders, but also tried and been effective in partnering with the other local health systems in these communities. Uh, So instead of all of us working in silos, really working together to produce a greater collective impact, And so as this work moves forward or or our path forward really includes building upon that to provide both clinical care and risk reduction on these clinics on wheels. And we're doing that by, we have this model where we're, we have a low threshold, low barrier model, primarily a walk-in clinic. We're out in the communities with each of our three vans for 20 hours a week. So four to five, four hour clinic sessions. Our clinics are held in early evening hours, like 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. or Saturdays. And we also co-locate our van at, you know, bigger community gatherings and fairs that are happening. We co-locate at food distribution lines when we're at the food pantries. In our effort to reach adult men with hypertension and diabetes, we've co-located in these communities of Chelsea and Everett and Revere at soccer fields on Sundays, you know, when there are large gatherings of our targeted patient population there for soccer. So really thinking outside the box and coming up with creative ways to meet people really where they're at in the communities and and guiding that effort 
by the direction that our community partners give us. Right. That's really good to hear. So it's really a a two-way road because it sounds like you're taking advice from the community advisors as well. I guess I wanted to kind of twist the conversation a tiny bit at this point and hear about the drug dependency programs that you might be working on. Could you talk about that? So one of the newer services to our menu of services includes providing substance use disorder care. And we're doing that in close collaboration with our substance use disorder program at Mass General Brigham, led by Dr. Sarah Wakeman. And essentially, addiction medicine trained providers co-locate with our core team of clinicians on the vans to provide this care. But like I mentioned, with every service that we provide. There's an element of clinical care that we're providing, but we're also providing risk reduction. And when it comes to substance use disorders, that includes certainly, you know, education around substance use, but also other harm reduction interventions, such as distribution of Narcan on our vans. And so we just recently got approved to be, by the state, to be a community distribution site to be able to give Narcan to individuals that will benefit from it. That's great to hear because I I think that there's been big news in the States right now about Narcan being approved for over-the-counter distribution. And I'm curious, how will that affect, do you think, the situation for people with substance abuse? So it's amazing news that Narcan has become over-the-counter. Making Narcan over-the-counter also helps destigmatize it, normalize the need of it, and really that will allow, that change in policy will really allow for the saving of lives. But, you know, I think one of the the issues that will remain is the cost. So uh, cost is a big consideration with Narcan. And the drug manufacturer that makes Narcan actually hasn't published what it will cost over the counter just yet. But, you know, the out-of-pocket cost for one box of Narcan, which is two sprays, runs about 50 to to $100. And that just makes it inaccessible for many of the individuals that need it most. And so I think that there is still very much a strong need for community distribution sites that can provide this medication free of charge like ours will be able to do. And, you know, I think we still need state and federal government to continue to support these community distribution sites so that we can keep Narcan more accessible, and especially as hopefully the stigma around its use changes, we can really see the impact that we hope to see with the number of lives saved. Yeah, I think a little bit of health economics will probably prove its worth way and above what they're charging for it. Is there anything else you'd like to share with your colleagues about this mobile health programs that you are working with? Did you want to share something with your physician colleagues? I think one of the other elements of our mobile program that's been really effective is as we've put together our core staff, which on each of our vans consists of a physician lead, a full-time nurse practitioner, a community health worker, a medical assistant, and an operations manager, is we've really tried to build our team with individuals that live and are from the communities that we're trying to serve. So we're able to bring care to these communities in the language and with the cultural humility that's needed to be effective. And then also, I will say that in addition to the medical care that we're able to provide, I think that the opportunity to be able to have a community health worker on our mobile unit has been especially helpful because I think more and more we are realizing the impact of and the importance of social risk mitigation in bringing health care that is effective and really 
bringing equity to the care that we provide in everything and everywhere. That's brilliant. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Dr. Saren Gupta, for your time and, and excellent insights. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.